Revelation 1 is where we are. John, the written the Gospel of John, and they've written 1st and 2nd, 3rd John. He's the one who's writing this. He's writing Revelation. He's on the Isle of Patmos. We think he's there because of his preaching of the Gospel, because he would not shut up. And so they've tried to kill him. That didn't work. And so they exiled him to like an Alcatraz of their day. So he's on the Isle of Patmos. It's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. He's given us that setting about chapter 1. He's there on the Lord's Day. He's in the Spirit. He is worshiping the Lord. He is praising Him. He is thanking Him. I don't know if he's reading the Word, if he's meditating on the Word, just thinking back about his life with Christ and, and why he was there and the things he was said. Maybe he just witnessed to somebody. Who knows? But he, he is there and he's in the Spirit, you know, praising God on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, the first day of the week. And he hears a voice behind him that sounds like a great trumpet. And we talked about that last week, how it's this, this trumpet sound, you know, and it gets his attention and it helps to focus him in because this is going to be a supernatural encounter. And so I want to remind you of verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is. It is revealing Christ to us. It is showing us him in a way we've not seen him before. We are going to have a description of Jesus Christ, the only physical description of Jesus Christ given to us in the Bible here this morning that we'll get through. And I'll remind you that when we're there. And so Jesus is going to show us as he, himself as he really is. We have little images in our mind. We have paintings and pictures and sculptures and, and things. But uh, at, at one time I'd heard in history, I believe they think it was the woman with the issue of blood. Uh, she was wealthy and she had commissioned a statue of Jesus to be made. But the Romans ground it to powder and made the residents drink it. And so the only one we'd have, an image of Jesus Christ, was ground to powder, probably for our own good. People probably didn't worship in it or anything else. You know, they kissed the toe off a statue of Peter. So who knows what they would have done with something like that. And so for guard protection, God got rid of that. And so um, let's read and see what John says as he hears this trumpet and he turns around. He has this encounter and he sees this. And so we're going to pick up at verse 12. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. So Revelation 1, verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flaming fire. And his feet likened to fine brass, as if burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun as it shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And he had the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which are shall be uh, hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou seest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And that's how the chapter ends. And so it's quite an encounter. Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking, thinking I'd get through all that, but uh, <laughs> I won't. And so uh, we'll get through part of it. And that's a lot. Um, but to start out with, who did he see? When he turns around, he sees someone. Who was it? He's given us a description. He tells us some things. It was Jesus, right? He describes himself to us. He tells us who he is. He uses words that we've already used before in this chapter. Matter of fact, he says, I am, in verse 18, he says, I am uh, he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Well, there's only one person who's resurrected never to die again, and that was Jesus Christ. So he uses a descriptor of himself of the resurrection. You know, this is me. And then he talks about, 
Fear not, I'm the first and last at the end of verse 17. He said that, he said that three times now already. In verse 11, he used that to describe himself. In verse 18, he said he was that. And so now we know for sure this is him. John is looking at him. Now John knows because John's not recognizing the Jesus that he saw on the earth. He's not recognizing the Jesus that he watches sin uh, on the Mount of Olives. He, this isn't the one that he was at the Last Supper with. You know, this one, he looks different. He's transformed. You know, he is there. And just to give a little peek ahead to next week, John had seen him in a, in a transfigured state before uh, in a little, in a, for a second. And so now we're seeing this where his, I guess we're understanding the miracle where Jesus veiled his deity when he held back this glory and this gleamingness that made John drive to his feet as if he's a dead man. And so Jesus Christ had held that back in the humility of being a, a man on the earth. And so he sees him and, and he sees him for who he is. And so, yes, this is Jesus Christ. And so... That's key to know who that is. It's going to make it easier as, we're, as we go back and understand uh, the things that we're looking back. And so uh, let's go back and, and, and start with the encounter and look at it as it happened. So verse 12, he says, And I turned to see a voice uh, that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And so he's on Patmos. There's a trumpet voice that goes, and I think, again, that is to help him focus blocks out the Isle of Patmos because when John turns around, he doesn't see the Aegean Sea or he doesn't see scrub bushes. I don't know which way he was facing. All of a sudden, he sees these seven golden candlesticks. You know, he's, he's transported to somewhere else. He's no longer on the Isle of Patmos. He might be there physically, but where he is looking and what he has seen, he has now been transported. And I think that trumpet is to help focus him in, to block out the rest. And he, now he sees, and as he turns around, he looks at these, these seven golden candlesticks. And so that's what he sees. And in the middle of them is Jesus. That's what verse 13 says. In the midst of the seven candlesticks was one like unto the Son of Man. And so Jesus is in the midst of them because we've said that the, the person that he sees is Jesus. And so these seven candlesticks and, and Jesus is there. Now the reason why a lot of people avoid the book of Revelation is because it uses a lot of imagery. It's one of the reasons why I like it. I use a lot of imagery in my mind, you know, how I think and, and say things. But it's imagery for a purpose. I think of this as a primer. Uh, you think of an uh, elementary school primer or primer, you know, something that is teaching you uh, A is for apple, you know, that, that kind of thing. This is instruction for us for the rest of the book. He is introducing us on how to interpret this book and how we are to go about it. And so he's giving us this example here at the beginning. And so he's using this, this primer, uh, an early reader, um, a legend on a map. You know, I, I think about a map, you know, in the bottom corner you have a legend uh, that tells you, what things on the map are, like a blue squiggly line. I wonder what that is. Oh, it's a river. You know, so you have a key down here that tells you what these different images mean. That's what this is. He's teaching us how to use the key, how to use the legend, so that when we go through the rest of this book, we're not like, I don't know what's going on. There's a lot of crazy images. No, we're going to be able to read it because we understand the rest of the Bible, and it's going to drive us through that. And so he is teaching us uh, in this little early encounter, and that's why he has John, we're going to see that he tells him later, you write this down, this encounter, because it's not only a primer for John, it's a primer for all of us who read and interpret this book, uh, if we pay attention to what he says. And so, what are the golden candlesticks? This is new, we've not seen it before. I can't go and search my Bible and say, where are the golden candlesticks? They are not there. There are menorahs, and there are things that are used in the temple, but there's not a candlestick in that way. This is something new. So the primer teaches us it's something new. Jesus is going to tell us what it is. Verse 20, he tells us. At the end of verse 20, he says, The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. 
I don't have to wonder. We don't have to debate. It's not like, what? I wonder what those mean. Jesus tells us what those mean. It's the, those represent the church. And so when we see these candlesticks uh, and that Jesus is in the midst of, that's the church. You know? and, and so we don't have to wonder about it. Uh, verse 12 tells us, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. So verse 20, like I said, tells us uh, that those are the church. Verse 11 tells us the names of those churches. It's Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now we're speaking in the context. Now we know what we're talking about. Jesus is in the middle of seven churches. The seven churches are these seven churches in Asia. We know their names. And, you know, because we know the rest of the book, he's going to write seven letters to them in the next two chapters. And so he's getting this use and in the context of what is going on and what is happening and where we are in the timeline on things. Verse 13 tells us that Jesus is in the midst of the seven candlesticks, so he's there. Here the Bible's already kind of, or the book of Revelation is already doing what it's going to do. Here we just read it, and you can just read it by that and just think, okay, I, I can picture this picture. There's seven golden candlesticks, and Jesus is in the middle of them. Uh, I can picture that. But is that all? It's there. Matthew 18 says, Where two or more are gathered together, in my name there I am with them in the midst of them. He's told us that in advance. He says, where two or more gathered together, when you get together and you have a church service, and you get together just to talk about me, to honor me, and whether it be on the Lord's Day or whether it be on a Wednesday or whether it be any other time during the week, he says, I'm in the middle of that. Here we literally see that. As John turns around, where's Jesus? He's in the middle of the churches when churches are gathered together to talk about them. We have the scripture being fulfilled, and John has seen that what Jesus has said in the past is being enacted here and now, and pretty cool, he's... Right here and now, we are gathered together in his name, discussing him, discussing his word. Christ is in the midst of us. We have a holy audience that is here with us. I think that's pretty awesome. So this primer is teaching us, the legend or the key is telling us that you know, this book will drive us to the rest of the book. You know, if, if I'm not going to tell you the answer right here and now, that means I've told you about this before. Uh, you should know your Bible well enough to go. And if we don't know our Bible well enough, go read it and, and pay attention. We live in a day and age where it's easy to search. Now, when, when I first started teaching, I, would, I taught a young adults class for a good while. Young, you know, so young couples and, and young uh, people right out of, uh, probably out of college or even out of high school, uh, the kind of way it was broken down. And I would have to spend time searching up these words. I'd be like, I wonder what that means or how it's going to go. So I had a big thick book called a Strong's Concordance. I still have two uh, back in my office. And I'd have to go and look and, and try to find that verse and go look it down. And man, where was it that he said? And it took a lot more time and it took a lot more effort and energy to find, like if I was going to look up the midst, I'm like, that's a pretty weird word. And so I'd try to think of a weird word in that verse. And so I'd look up midst. I'd go find it. It'd tell me the Greek word. I'd go look at the Greek word. And then it would tell me every time that word was used. And it'd give you a little bit of, little, little smidge of a part of that verse so you could find it and track it down. There was no Google. Uh, there was no internet. There was no Bible program. I did progress forward. My mom and dad got me a thing called the Franklin Bible. It was a little thing like this. It had a keypad on it. It was about that square. And it had a little LED screen. And I could type... Uh, a first few parts of a verse, and it would help me go and search those verse, verses out. And so I would take that with me to work. I'd carry it around everywhere, and I'd search it a little bit, and it, it would help me in that way. And that's a lot easier now. I have Blue Letter Bible on my phone. I used to have to go to the Internet, find the Blue Letter Bible, search it in there, you know, first wait for the dial-up, and then hopefully we got, had you know, Internet for five minutes, and it'd be like, 
hey, the page is loading. I go get me a bowl of cereal. Come back. You're like, I might be able to search something today. And if I was on there for five or six minutes, yeah, there's a Blue Letter Bible right there. Free app. Go use it. You have, you can search every word. You can word search everything. You have commentaries. You have, uh, you can see where every word is used. There's all kinds of lessons on there. There's teachings. There's commentaries. There's ones you can listen to, videos you can watch, and it's all free. Uh, and so it is out there. Uh, it's a great resource that I recommend, the Blue Letter Bible. That makes things so much easier. And so, man, it was hard. But this was drives us to it. And so even where we might not know it, now we have this tool that we can say, oh, where does he say that? Or that sounds like a phrase maybe I've heard before. You could type that in and it'll help you find those verses. And then you begin to make those pieces come together. I can remember sitting at my dining room table because I'm goofy me, and I was literally almost imagine myself putting on my fedora and hearing that dun 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 dun. I felt like Indiana Jones digging into an ancient tomb, unlocking secrets of the past. That's what this is. We have an ancient document given to us from God, or maybe I was Nicolas Cage on National Treasure. You know, and I'm seeking through, finding the clues as they lead through there because the Bible tells us He does that. He's left us trails. He's driving us into the rest of this. You know, and it is just as neat as finding a pair of glasses and a brick wall. You know, this is opening, eye-opening that shows us these things and begin to see it all lay out together, that is exciting. This is a treasure hunt. And the Bible even tells us that God has concealed things and is the wisdom of kings to find them out. He wants us to search, to dig deeper and, and to find these links and these chains and spend time thinking about it and discussing it. And so he's doing that. And so here I think about Jesus in the midst of the candlesticks. He said he would be in the midst of the church. And so that confirms what we've heard in the gospel. So we are thinking right we are interpreting this right. Jesus is in the midst of the church. He told us he would be. He is. We sense it. We feel it. And here John tells us, I look, I see it. Jesus is in the middle of the church. So the candlesticks is new. And so he tells us, except in the temple, there were menorahs, uh, but it was one lampstand that had seven branches. So this is unique and it was different. So they had the one branch, you know, they had a fillet full of oil. Uh, The oil would come to the top. That was what was lit. You know, the the lampstand didn't give light. You know, the fire gives light, but it was the one that supported it. It held the oil. It it put it out there and shined forth. The same thing with these candlesticks, or you can call them lampstands, or how they're often used. There's seven of them. These are seven separate ones, seven different of them. And that's pretty telling, too. Because in the Old Testament, God worked through one agent, Israel. He had one place where you met to worship him, the temple. There was one source, one way. You had to, if you wanted to meet with him, you had to come, and you had to meet at the door, and you met with a priest, and the priest would go before him and do all that. It was a long, complicated process, and we've talked about that at length here. It's different now. There's not one place. He's here right now in Trafalgar, Indiana. I know he's in Franklin, Indiana, too. And he's in Greenwood, and he's in Martinsville. And he's around and around, and he's meeting in all these churches that get together and preach the gospel. He's there, and he's in their midst as well. It's not like we have to all go and get in our car or Skype and turn on, oh, let's go look at Jerusalem and see what's happening to the one source. No, we have many sources that Jesus Christ is representing the gospel in. After the resurrection, the church grew and it spread, and we worship him here and not just in Jerusalem. I thought, wow, Jesus told me this before too. Look with me in John chapter 4, or at least alluded to it. And again, it shows us that Jesus Christ knows the future. John 4, uh, verse 19. John 4, verse 19. This is at the woman at the well. Jesus has met her. He's going to witness to her. And and the woman says unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our father worship in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship him. 
That's right, right? That's, Jerusalem was the spot. That was the whole problem with the Samaritans. That they set up their own way and their own place, and they'd gone there. That's a lot of the rub in First Kings. Second Kings, you know, when, when the, the Israel gets divided and Manasseh makes these other places to go and worship, and he, and he erects a cow, and he does all this. It's like, that's wrong. You know, Jerusalem was where you went through. And so Jesus talks about that, verse 21. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh. When ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father, ye worship no, not what, we what we worship uh, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman saying unto him, I know that when Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. He's like, I am the Messiah. I am telling you these things. There's going to come a day where you don't have to be in a mountain. You don't have to be any place. You'll, you'll be where the Spirit is gathered together, where two or more are gathered together. You'll be able to, to read and talk unto me and be in my midst, and you'll have that. And so Jesus Christ has told that too. So it's not just one place anymore. It's the church, and it's a church around the world. And we've sent missionaries back over to Smyrna you know, to establish that and to come alongside and make sure the gospel is there, let alone other parts of the world where we have the church out proclaiming. And so um, the temple was destroyed, and the church spread, and now he has picked seven churches to represent the church. There are more, and we've talked about that. There were more uh, that he could have picked and that he could have said. He doesn't even mention, you know, the, the church at Jerusalem. You know, he doesn't use those. He goes, I'm going to use these seven to represent the church. And so that's what it is. It's a representation. Um, but it means he's here, which is, I think, awesome. So it's not just one. It's not just like, this is the only church that has the gospel. If anybody really wants to be saved, they have to be, be here. You know, broad is the way, but few that be that find it. And you're the only few because you found this church and we're here and I'm the only messenger. Sometimes that kind of gets conveyed. That's not the case. There's a real spirit of that. And I'm going to plug our you again because we get to see it fleshed out in that. There's people that come and we say, you need to follow up at church. And we haven't, it's called RU2. And it's basically gets them into Sunday school to get them in, into church on the, on, the, on the daily basis. And we're like, you can come here to Cornerstone. You can go to fellowship. Uh, there's a Beach Grove Baptist. If you're in Franklin, there are churches in Franklin. Go. And then we have a sign-up sheet. And, you know, let us know, did you go to Sunday school? Yeah, I would love to have them here. I want them to be in church. You know, we want them to be in church. We want them to be grounded where it's convenient, where it's going to be easy for them, and a fellowship of believers they get along with. Uh, that is it, because the gospel is out there. I'm not worried about me and Brian's numbers. I'm worried about the Lord and his numbers and what's going on, that he has true disciples that are pleasing him, worshiping him, and spirit and truth. So, yeah, we get behind that. Here, church going? Good. You know, that is there. And so we're encouraging that. And so the gospel, we don't have just a corner on the gospel. Uh, we have this corner. <laughs> and so we're here and we preach the gospel. And so it's not just our church, not just our state. It's not just our country. It's Christ works around the world. And so uh, he is in the midst of all that. On this morning, who knows how many churches he's in, but that's pretty cool to think of the omniscience of God. And so not just one place is right. The gospel is preached globally. And so this tells us who we are too. We are not the light. Jesus is the light. John 8, 12 says that, I am the light of the world. John 9, 5 says that, I am the light of the world. John 12, 46 says, I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me shall not abide in darkness. See, we are to be shining that light. We are to be spreading that light. We are to be showing people the light. Uh, we are to lift him up. We are to glorify him just like a candlestick or a lampstand would work is that you put the light on top of it. It makes it easier. It makes, it makes you see it better. You ever had a house that didn't have a light in it? You know, it just had outlets around. 
And you go in and there's a light switch, but there's no light in the center of the room. And so, you know, you go in there, it's just dark until you put a light. And it might be on the counter, but, you know, but a light that has a light on top sure does light the room a lot better, you know, when it comes down that way. It's, it's usually, you know, something you have to buy to stick in there to, to make it work. Yeah, but when you have the light on top, boy, it sheds that light and shines down. It lights it up good. And so usually you want to lift it up when the power goes out, you know. I, my wife has a good supply of candles and lights and lanterns we have them around in case you know, so we have ready access to them if i haven't wandered off with them and stuck them someplace which guilty is charged but you know, we usually have them and we put one on the kitchen table and we might sit around because now you know we can't look at our phones we just look at our hands and stare at each other no you know, but you know you have the you have the light in the middle light's a lot different isn't it you know but if you can get a little bit higher but you know it's a, it's a fire so you can't have it too high and so you know but if the higher you have the light the better it goes And there's a hook that i can hang a little electric light on and it lights the room a lot better we can see a lot better so this is a lampstand and so it's not sitting on the table it's on the floor it's lifted up you know so people can see it and so we want to shine the light of the gospel we want to convey the light into the darkness you know christ shines through us we are to illuminate the darkness that has engulfed the darkness of humanity. We want to be the light that shines in that darkness, that shows them that there's hope, that there's a way that, that Jesus Christ can do that. Now look at Matthew 5. That should sound familiar to us too. So Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 14. Jesus says, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's us. We're to light that light and let it shine. We're not to put it under a bushel, no. We teach that to our kids, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You know, I'm not going to let Satan put it out. Would we as adults would fight for it as hard as those kids, you know, garden it. They're not going to let him it out. And they're not going to make him sit on attack or whatever else we make him do. We're going to keep that light shining. We don't want to get in the way of the light. Well, look who I am and what I'm doing. And we put all of our needs and all our wants in front of it to where the light is hard to see. No, we want to keep it there shining. We want nothing to uh, get in the way. If anything, we might try to think of something that makes the light brighter. We want to put reflectors around it. We are those reflectors. We are the shiny surface that should be illuminating and expanding and putting that light and pushing it out there. Jesus here is in the midst of these candlesticks, these lampstands, and he's cleaning us. That's part of his job. That's, that's an illusion. We're not going to go look at it, but that's the high priest's job. He would go in and he would care for the menorah. He would make sure it had oil. He'd make sure the lamp was there. The wick was, was right. He would have to prune it sometimes. He would shine the surface thereof so that it was shining forth in that way. Jesus Christ is in the middle of us and he is wiping away the dirt and the grime that we get on us that gets in the way of our reflecting the light. He is here to polish us, to shine us. Sometimes he has to prune us a little bit. Yeah, I got to get rid of that. You know, that wick's not working quite so good. We have to die to ourselves and we let him trim that off of us. He wants us to shine. He wants us to shine brightly. He wants us to reflect him, to show him, uh, and to show him into the world. And so we come here to hear his word, to read it, and he washes us. Look at Ephesians 5. So just a short little statement, but man, that's your... Brings a lot of back to it when you start driving you back to the rest of the Bible. Ephesians 5, verse 25, tells us about his love for the church. Matter of fact, you can almost picture him in the midst of the candlesticks taking care of it here. So Ephesians 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. There's our example, husbands. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, 
that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water of the word. And so he is here, he's sanctifying us, he's making us to be that useful vessel. He's cleaning it, he's washing it, and he does that with his word. That's why we come and we read his word. It cleanses us, it shows us our guiltiness, it gets us to confess our sins, and if we confess our sins, he is guilt. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and so he washes us and he cleans us. Why? Verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And so he says, he wants us to be righteous. He wants us to be pure. He wants us to be for our good and for his glory. So we shine him forth. And so we're to do that. So Jesus is doing the work of the high priest in the church. He is tending the lamps. He is taking care of the candlesticks. He is making sure they are not dim and that they don't go out and that we keep the light shining forth. So it drives us to the Old Testament. Like I said, we could go through the Old Testament, look at the high priest's job and all this. But we know it, and so we're not going to do that tonight and so, or this morning. But look how he's dressed. Verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks was one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Uh, His head and his hairs were as white as wool and as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet were likened to fine brass, and as if they were burned in a furnace, and his voice was the sound of many waters. Son of Man, verse 13, is how he starts out. Um, He says, I... In the midst of the candlesticks is one likened to the Son of Man. This is one of Jesus' favorite descriptors to describe himself. He used it of himself 81 times in the gospel. 81 times. So if he was going to describe himself, he'd usually say the Son of Man. This is one that he liked to use. And he was using that during the gospel period to drive them back to its original source. Its original source was in the book of Daniel. So he is telling people, go look at Daniel and see who the Son of Man is. He is telling us now, one, go look, I claim to be the Son of Man, and then we should go back to the ultimate source, which is Daniel. Let's turn there, Daniel chapter 7. We were just in Daniel not that long ago on Wednesday nights. So Daniel, just in front of Hosea, chapter 7, is where Jesus takes this phrase from. It was a descriptor of him, and so he's reminding people, this is who I am. So Daniel 7, we'll read verse 13 and 14. Daniel seven thirteen says, And I saw in the night vision, and behold, one likened to the Son of Man. That's where we get it. Come with the clouds of heaven. We've already seen that in chapter 1 here already, that he comes in the clouds. And he came to the Ancient of Days and brought him near before him. Verse 14. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is that which shall not be destroyed. Son of man is a a word for the Messiah. It is one who is coming to rule and reign on the earth, who is going to have a kingdom and establish the kingdom. It is God's man, the Messiah, who comes and does this. But while we're here, I also want us to read verse 9, because it will get us ready for the other verses uh, here in Revelation. So Daniel 7 verse 9 says, And I behold, till the thrones were cast down, and the ancient of days did sit. Now pay attention. Whose garment was as white as snow, that the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels of a burning brass. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the judgment was set, and the books were opened. And so this is a descriptor too that is used for us here in Revelation 1. Revelation 1, verse 13 through 15, cover all that. There's a lot of info in there. Like I said, this is the only physical description that we were ever given of Jesus Christ, other than maybe in Isaiah when it said his visage was marred before any other man, that that when he was crucified, he was beaten to such a pulp that you would hardly even recognize him. And so, as we see this descriptor, verse 13, it says that uh, he's the Son of Man, 
Uh, he's clothed with a garment down to the foot. That means something to us. You know, we're like, yeah, we generally wear all that, but it was different for them. This is kind of a priestly type of garment that is described. It also shows status. A working man had a shorter garment on because he's moving. You know, he, he's got to keep active. He's got to, he's got to work. He's got to move. He's got to run. If you've got something long on, I'll, I'll take ladies' advice on this. I imagine, you know, it's harder to walk in a long skirt. You know, I can help my wife enough. You know, as she's walking, you look for a better place. You know, she can't, she's on the ice. You've got to help them, you know, because they can't spread their leg. You know, because they're going to skirt. Oh, you know, they're going to fall down. And then I look stupid. You know, so it, it, it's harder. So this is the thing of status. This is not somebody who's having to be out running around working. This is a guy who can be deliberate and slow and his movement, who is methodical in his steps, who is there being, thinking about what he is doing while he was doing it. So I think, think of, a, of a priest in the temple who is not rushing what he is doing. He's taking slow steps as he moves around. He's in, in a garment that kind of helps remind him of that. You're not going to be fast about this. It's not like, come in, I've got to put the bread in. And I don't, don't want to do that. He's going to be thoughtful about what he's doing. He's going to be taking deliberate steps. He's there. He's in power and in control. In this sense, he is representing the people. Uh, Christ is doing all that. Our Lord knows what he is doing. He is not in a rush. He is in control of every step as we watch things move and as we watch things go. I like the Left Behind books. I think Gerald's probably about the only one who likes them more than me. <laughs> but I was just going through one again this week, and I was thinking how it holds up. I was like going through the first book, and then how it also doesn't hold up. Uh, because there's a lot of things that they talk about and what the world and what it was. And I can remember as those books came out thinking that, man, this is it. You could see it any moment, any time. And I think about our day today, and I think, we are ten times worse. It is way worse. It is way later. Uh, it uses abortion in this book and talks about the stand of the, of the country in abortion. We are way worse. Late-term abortion to the point where we're talking about infanticide to where people, when we say in the, in the President's State of the Union address, said, we don't want to do this. We don't want to kill a baby after it's been born. And half of the place stood and clapped said, yes, we are for that. And half of the place said, no, we want that. Shocking. If that didn't make a gasp come out of the world, it didn't make you sick at your stomach to say, that's who you are and what you stand for, infanticide? That's horrible. You know, that's so much darker. Uh, in the book, it's about a reporter who goes around to find the truth, digs hard, and will do nothing, and will stop at nothing to proclaim the truth. Our media is nothing about truth. It's all about agenda. And who's going to be what and how they can sway what you're going to think. It's a totally different world in which we live in. Uh, that they talk about things that are going on in Israel that might be happening, that Israel is there and things were moving. We have them dedicated the altar to the temple, planning on doing a Passover sacrifice this Passover. You know, we are so much further down the line. We are on the cusp. And so it kind of woke me up to the urgency of what is going on. It is, our world has progressed. And when you kind of go back to an older thing like that, that yeah, it talks about fax machines and cell phones and stuff a little bit differently. They still had answering machines. You know, that it's a little bit different in that way too, but it's like, man, we have moved and we have moved darker and we have moved deeper in that way and it is scary. But God is in control. He is moving through every step and we are to be that lampstand, that light that is shining forth. It says that he's girded about with a golden girdle. Think better, sash. I like that word better than a girdle, but it's a sash. And so it's a symbol of strength and authority. Only those in the ancient world wore a sash in this way. It was a uh, Again, workers were loose-fitting. This was something else that confined them that kind of showed that he had power and authority. The priest would have a sash that had some golden fibers woven into it, showing their power and authority that they had. Jesus is all gold. You know, that shows that he is the ultimate power and the ultimate authority. And so uh, he's went all in control. So 
These are explained to us in the Old Testament. Again, they've already been there. And so that's why when we get to these, you know, Jesus isn't like, well, let me tell you about my girdle. Let me tell you about this. It's in the Old Testament. That's why this is the legend. I'll tell you about something new. Other things you go look in the Old Testament, I've already mentioned these. And so it's driving us back. And we've looked at several verses this morning that it's taken us back to. Uh, Verse 14 says, his head was on his hairs were white like wool and white as snow. Uh, we saw that in Daniel 7, right? That he has that, uh, the Ancient of Days that was on the throne. It shows that one, his long-termness, that he's the Ancient of Days. shows wisdom, conveys that. The lighter your hair, the smarter you are. I just added that because I'm gray. <laughs> but uh, but, uh, um, but a, gray crown is a, a gray hair is a crown of rejoicing, the Bible does say. I'm rejoicing that I still have hair. How's that? But, uh, <laughs> but the Old Testament has, the hair is about that. Again, Daniel 7, he's the Ancient of Days. He's the everlasting one. He's the one who's lived long time and so is represented here by this white hair. He's also righteous and pure like snow. We could take you to Isaiah, you know, that, that mentions that. Uh, I think it was even mentioned there in Daniel 2 that it's his righteousness, that he is the righteous one. He is white. He is pure. There's nothing that taints him. His eyes are like a flaming fire, it says there. Literally, in the Greek, it is translated, his eyes shoot fire. I've gotten that from my wife and my mother a few times. You know, that eyes shooting fire. Like, what are you doing? I've tried to do it to my kids before. You see them across the room. What are you doing? We're just making <laughs> so, but you know, if you're mad at them, you're like, "What are you doing? Stop that!" You know, we used to say, "We wish we had a little shock collar on." It's kind of this way. Jesus is that way that he's upset about something. He has judgment in his eyes. You know, this is different. This is different than the Jesus on earth. You know, who's coming and preaching? Now he's coming with judgment. And then verse 15, he says, "His feet were likened to fine brass." Uh, brass is the instrument of judgment in the Old Testament. It was the metal for them. Uh, the altar at the tabernacle was made out of brass. That's where sin was judged. He is coming to stamp out sin. He is coming to judge sin is what he's telling us. And so he's painting the picture of and how he appears. And so Jesus judges sin. The world lies to you and says, my God would never judge because your God does not exist. Jesus judges sin. Jesus tells you what is right and wrong. Jesus will decide if you are on his side or not. And he tells you what he expects of you. And he will judge you if you are on the wrong side. So yeah, don't buy the lie. I think Lady Gaga was the last one to put it out there. Oh, Mike Pence is a horrible Christian. Christians are like this. We are all accepting. We take everything. No, we test all things. We examine all things. We hold fast to that which is true. We let God judge these things. And so, yes, Jesus comes and he has brass. He has has feet of judgment. He will stamp on sin. Uh, verse 15 ends with, his voice is as the sound of many waters. Uh, think of standing at the base of the Niagara Fall. I've only been to Niagara Falls once. It was wintertime. It was frozen. It was a roaring deal. It was dangerous. It looked dangerous. It sounded dangerous. It was cold and seemed even more dangerous. And remember thinking about people going over that in barrel. We were there and there was a fence. You know, it was a short fence, but the snow was up, so it was like up to my shins. And there's a bunch of Japanese tourists who were jumping over the fence, running right over to the edge, saying, take my picture. I'm like, you're probably on an ice ledge. We're going to watch people die. And so we ended up moving. I want to watch that. It's like, you're just scoff law. But man, this roaring water, it's like if you fell in the river, it was marked at this point. You had destruction, but it was loud. Like being out the ocean, I like to be out there when the waves are breaking. And we tried to do them. But, you know, I could be like from here to there and talking to the boys or whoever's out there with me and be like, that was a pretty good way, wasn't it? You know, you're having to yell the whole day you're there because it's loud, let alone that's on the sandy beach, let alone if it's on a rocky beach. It's, it's a roar. Jesus is the still small voice now, right? He speaks to us through everything. He's in his creation. He's in his word. He's moving among Christians, showing kind things. He is speaking. He's continually speaking. We are to have ears to hear. We are to have eyes to see. We see him moving and working. We can see the Lord in this and that. 
I'll share Dave's testimony. Dave was, said uh, he'd been wanting to talk to the marshal in Nineveh, was that it was, and couldn't get a hold of him. The road was flooded. He couldn't leave for work that day. Who's blocking the road? The marshal. Uh, captive audience. You know, so David is able to talk to them. God's in charge. God is moving. God is behind all these things. God is working. We see that not as a man. I miss work. That's an opportunity to talk to this guy about are you and what's going on that can plug people in to be a channel for that. We have eyes to see and we are to see. That's why we have a chart back here with axe head moments where God steps up and does things for us because we are seeing, we are noticing God moving and working. The world doesn't see that, but one day he's not going to be a small voice anymore. At the end of this book, he is a roaring river. He is a roaring waterfall. He is a crashing sea that as he says it, everyone hears it. He drowns out all over everything else. It is him and him alone that we are listening to. And that is what this book is about. It progresses as it goes. Here's a tragedy. Here's a tragedy. Here's horrible things. And God speaks and God speaks. And there's silence and the time for them to repent and trust in him. But God is getting louder in his roar saying, do you not see who I am? Do you not know who I am? Do you not respect my power and authority? I'm coming to judge you. Get right with me. He is trying to reach out to them. But he is in a still small voice now. But he is now revealing to us, it's not staying that way. I'm coming as judge. I am coming to pour out my wrath on the world. And I want to warn them. So yeah, one day he will drown it all out. Because this is all rightly his, and he will take it all over. And so, yep, he will be pouring out his wrath on the world. And so he has given us a preview of the book of Head. Are you ready to meet that Christ with the feet for judgment, with the eyes shooting fire as he looks at us, as the voice that's like a water that you cannot drain out and say that, I didn't hear you, I didn't know what you were saying, I didn't know you were leading me in that. He's going to say it so strong and so clear. We are to turn our heart to be sensitive to him. That's why we gather together and in the midst of this candlestick where Christ is here with us this morning, we read the word so that he peels back the layers of our flesh and it makes us sensitive. We want to stay sensitive. We don't want to be calloused. We want to be sensitive to the prompting of the Spirit so that we are guilty and convicted about the least little things. So we want to be right with him so that we can stay close with him so that when judgment comes, it's not a great judgment. It is like, oh, you've dealt with that in your life. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Are you ready to meet him? That's what this book is about. Are you ready to meet him? Do you know him? Do you know his word? Do you know what he's doing? Do you sense him in the world? Do you see him in the church today? Is he cleaning on you this morning? Is he having to trim maybe part of your wick? Is he polishing that lampstand a little bit and saying, you know, you need to get that off. It's, it's, it's in the way of me and, and my light being reflected in your life. Can you make that shine a little brighter? I imagine he's here moving among us this morning. I know he's worked on me. Just be prepared to meet him. That's why he loves us, to gather together so that we go through these little judgment seats. So that it's not a great and vast and horrible day when it comes. It is a day that we look forward to. Our king, the one who cared us enough to to, to chasten us and to love us and to mold us into the image of his dear son. What a wonderful place that is for a good Christian to be in. That's what he wants us to be. Good, obedient Christians. Good lampstands who shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world.